Now, Scatman Crothers was so impressed in working with Clint Eastwood that he decided to do something special, something that would be, uh, would be memorable. Well, yeah, like uh, the tune that I'd written for him entitled Clint Eastwood, can in parentheses, is Bronco <laughs> Billy. I'll give you a few bars of it. All right. I'm talking about a man you see on your screen. I'm talking about a man tall, lanky, and lean. I'm talking about a man who is oh so good. I'm talking about a man named Clint Eastwood. I'll send you the record and I'll finish it. <laughs> All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Split Picks. I'm Craig Wright, and it's good to be back. We've taken some time off. We did our special October Horror series, in which we looked at Toby Hooper, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, and George Romero. We've been gone for so long that even Synesthesia has a newer episode than we do. So, welcome back. We're rolling back the clock a little bit today, because we're finishing up some loose ends from September. But I'm really happy to be back. We have... As per usual, Bennett Glace. How you doing, Bennett? Uh, doing good. Uh, glad to be uh, talking Clint Eastwood. Uh, been revisiting some of the classics lately, and uh, as good as ever. Yes. Many of them better than I remembered. Yes, I totally agree. And we also have, for his second episode, filmmaker, film teacher, and founder of White City Cinema, Michael Glover-Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic and uh, very excited to be back talking about one of my favorite filmmakers, Mr. Clint Eastwood. So back in September, while we were prepping for October Horror, the two of you took over Split Picks to talk about Clint Eastwood's newest film, which is Cry Macho. I hadn't seen it at the time, but because of your episode, I was so excited to see it. It was great. It totally outdid all my expectations for it. And we saw it in a theater with, I think, four other people. (laughs) It's a bummer that that one kind of slid under the radar. But, you know, as we'll discuss today, there are some reasons for that. But we're going to be diving into everything. But today, as we do on Split Picks, we're going to be looking at two lesser known films by the director, Clint Eastwood. We'll put them head to head, see what they tell us about his life, career, and in this instance, our country. So we'll be going chronologically. Bennett, your movie is up first. Do you want to tell us what you selected and can we get a yeehaw with it? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, Bronco Billy is uh, about the title character, uh, William McCoy, and uh, he's the head of a uh, traveling Wild West show. And um, it's interesting that the two movies we're talking about, I think, are probably the only two times that Clint has ever sort of played a loser, um, which I think is one of the reasons they stand out. Now, I don't think he's a loser in either of these movies, but I think people who are maybe skeptical to the whole Eastwood mission would be like, oh, this this fucking, this loser. And people who are maybe skeptical to him within their, within the films to regard him as a loser, though I think as we'll talk about, there are remarkably few of those, despite the fact that in both cases they're really 
failing upward at best oftentimes. But um, uh, here, uh, he and his castmates in the Wild West show, um, I, I think they should look familiar to anybody who likes the film, uh, Ed Wood. Um, and in both cases, both I think the films and the title characters are really kind of unfailingly optimistic. You know, uh, the, the crowds here are thin. Um, the first performance we see goes poorly. But uh, much like Cry Macho, uh, it's a film where the character kind of seems to almost overcome obstacles by virtue of the fact that he's Clint Eastwood, and then everyone seems to kind of regard him as an icon. And um, I don't know, one of the reasons I like it the most, one of the reasons it's, I don't know, maybe my favorite of his films, is that uh, it's the best example of the mode I like best from him, which is the kind of like slow, easygoing, kind of uneventful, often episodic road trip film from him. And uh, though it's a pretty easygoing, again, kind of uneventful, conflict light movie, it reaches a crescendo that if it doesn't move you, I don't give a pulse. Uh, you know, I, I write about it in the piece that it offers a lot of kind of naked appeals to nostalgia and uh, kind of childish idolization. Mm-hmm. Bennett, you just wrote a really amazing piece about Bronco Billy. It's on Splittooth Media now. I'd recommend giving that a read if you haven't yet it's fantastic i really don't have anything else to say about it except it's well worth your time but i'm really excited about this matchup because we knew bronco billy was going to be your pick bennett but mike i'm not kidding the day i watched honky talk man for the first time you emailed us like 30 minutes after it finished and you're like i'm picking this one i was like wow how perfect (laughs) (laughs) sorry to ruin your pick but (laughs) you've got honky talk man so do you want to tell us a little bit about why you picked it yeah, well, um, Bennett and I had talked about Bronco Billy, and I thought Honky Tonk Man would pair well with it from what I remembered about both of those films, although I hadn't seen either in over 20 years. So it was really a pleasure to kind of go back and rewatch them both in close succession. And one thing I realized, I think I watched, I watched them in a span of, you know, about 36 hours, Um, I was kind of amazed to realize that they're basically the same movie. Mm -hmm. Um, In a lot of ways, uh, you basically have the comedy version and the tragedy version of the same story. And um, as Bennett, you know, indicates, um, Honky Tonk Man is is an optimistic film. That's something you talk about in your your, uh, wonderful review. And I think Honky Tonk Man is sort of like the pessimistic version or the tragedy version of that same story. So um, you can really compare and contrast these films with one another quite profitably. And I think um, one of the most interesting points of contrast is, you know, Bronco Billy is a film about community. Um, it's about Bronco Billy McCoy, the ramrod, who uh, has to kind of cajole and inspire the Wild West troop around him. Um, and of course, in a lot of ways, it's a metaphor for, you know, directing a movie and, you know, having to inspire your collaborators, your cast and your crew. And then um, Honky Tonk Man, although it has a lot of humor in it, it really is a much sadder film because it's about someone who's completely alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, both Red Stovall, the protagonist of Honky Tonk Man, and Bronco Billy McCoy are kind of on the bottom rungs of the showbiz ladder. You know, they're both uh, just barely eking out an existence, trying to achieve some measure of success in their field. But, Red Stovall is really all alone in the world. And the only reason why he has a traveling companion 
and we should also, I should also point out both films are road movies. That's another important point of comparison. But the only reason Red has a companion is because he needs a driver because he literally cannot drive a car. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're both great, equally wonderful for, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost, you mentioned that this is kind of like the pessimistic reflection of Bronco Billy or Honky Tonk Man is sort of the, the pessimistic reflection of Bronco Billy. It's almost as if he decided to remake Bronco Billy after seeing Knight Riders and seeing right. how Romero <laughs> reflected on basically the same material. Cause it has like the Knight Riders ending. It's like, Oh no, obviously this, this sort of guy can't keep living. Uh, yeah. This has to die. He, he can't achieve success. And uh, yeah. At best people are going to talk about him. Yeah. Right. After, well, um, he, you know, we'll get into this later, but, uh, you know, the, a legend is born in the final, yeah, yeah, in the final scene. Clint has had an interesting public perception for years, but, you know, we're covering a filmmaker who over, what, 50 years has made basically 40 films. But to many people, his career is defined by an 11 minute speech and an empty chair. You both covered a ton of ground about Clint in the Cry Macho episode, but the two films we're covering today come from the early 1980s, so totally different time before 2011 or 12, whenever it was. Um, But Michael, I'm curious, because you teach film, and I'm sure it comes up quite often these days about what do you tell your students when they're kind of hesitant to engage with someone they deem problematic as a creator? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I I tend to avoid showing films that um, that are going to provoke that kind of discussion because we just simply don't have time to, yeah. to get into it. Um, you know, it's like uh, most of my classes are kind of overviews of the history of cinema, and I I. I almost hate to admit it, but, you know, I haven't shown a Roman Polanski film in years, whereas a decade ago I was showing them quite, quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, the two Eastwood films that I have shown are Unforgiven and Bridges of Madison County. And I, I would show those again because I don't think Eastwood is problematic in the way that, you know, directors who have been canceled like Polanski or Woody Allen are, are problematic. Um, I think with Eastwood, it's much it's much easier to to defend his movies in the face of um, the fact that people might disagree with his personal politics because he's not um, he's not guilty of, a, of, of, you know, of a crime <laughs> the right. way Polanski and, and Woody Allen are. So so that for me is the line. In the case of Allen's films in particular, too, the films are so often like validating the awful mindset of like a, a canceled guy. Whereas like Eastwood, I think as we have already said, uh, it opens up a, a so much more interesting person than like the public perception usually lets you believe uh, about Eastwood. Another, another way in which he differs from some other uh, problematic filmmakers of his day. Right. Uh, but you know, he's a, he's a complicated guy, uh, which makes him interesting. And the fact that he's never stopped experimenting in 50 years of making films is a testament to that. The fact that, you know, like three years ago, he made 1517 to Paris, a film that I can't quite defend as much worth your time as anything other than, you know, an interesting oddity. But I don't know how many directors are doing something like that in their you know late 80s. Bennett, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, we just published your incredible essay on Bronco Billy on Split Tooth. 
Can you just give us a quick introduction to the film and why it stands out to you in Clint's filmography? So I, early pandemic, probably like April of 2020, I started going through all of Clint's films. And uh, this is one that stood out as especially little viewed. I think if you sort by popularity on Letterboxd, it's ranked last, even below Breezy, though I think more people have logged in. Um, And, uh, you know, it was interesting to me that it was so little seen because it was clear that it was um, a film that Clint was especially fond of. Um, Anything you read about him, he he gives so few interviews. He certainly gives very few enlightening interviews. But I bought Conversations with Clint. And in Conversations with Clint, it really seems to be one that he's kind of like annoyed about the lack of attention it got. He's he's a little, like, defensive about it, um, especially, like, its box office performance in comparison to Every Which Way But Loose. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like I alluded to earlier. It's it's the best example of a couple of modes I really like from Clint. The the kind of road trip mode, the um, artist trying to be taken seriously mode, which we also see in Honky Tonk Man as well as uh, Bridges of Madison County, two of the other films I love from him. And it's um, yeah, it's also as as, as Dave Kerr mentions, it's um, a film that sees him kind of like uniting two different kind of sensibilities as far as like community is concerned. Bronco Billy is a staunchly like independent guy who set out and said, you know, I've shooed my, I've horned my last shoe, but he's also someone who is very much dependent on this community. And, uh, honestly, like, I think that opening scene is, is the opening like fight he has with, um, the, the cast is such a great, um, look at how hurt he would be if they ever actually like left him or ever actually, you know, got in a fight with him about money. He, he needs them as much as, you know, they need him. So it's, I don't know, combining um, two different uh, attitudes in, in such an interesting way. It's so unusual to me that such a great film is so underseen. Um, so anything I can do to bring more attention to a film that Quint, uh, Clint quite rightly considers uh, one of his favorites, I would like to do. <laughs> Michael, do you remember the first time you saw Bronco Billy? Yes, I was in uh, grad school at Humboldt State University in California, Northern California, and I rented it from a video store. Um, This was probably 2001, 2002. And, you know, was was already a big Clint Eastwood fan at the time, but just that was one that had sort of gotten away. So I watched it and I fell in love with it. And, um, and then I never watched it again until now, but I was kind of amazed to realize, like in my mind, it, it, it was always one of my top five. And, and I knew that Clint had always thought highly of it. And it wasn't until I read Bennett's piece that I kind of realized that the rest of the world didn't see it that way. Um, I noticed on the IMDb, the average user rating is 6.1. And I was astonished that it was that low. I mean, um, even Honky Tonk Man is a 6.6. So um, Joker's got a (laughs) (laughs) 9.5. So it's it's a film that definitely, you know, its reputation is in need of resuscitation. So let's uh, let's do that. Yeah. I mean, Bennett, I think Brett and I watched it for the first time right around when you did. And we all had the same reaction. Just like, this is fantastic. Like, why is no one talk about this movie? <laughs> Mike, I think when I first interviewed you for Split Tooth back in 2020, I had just watched Bronco Billy and was about to watch Honky Tonk Man. Interestingly <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. Yeah. I think I, I remember mentioning that I was in this era, which is such an interesting era for Clint. I think another reason these two films are so interesting is he's always had kind of a one for me, one for them, yeah, a- approach to his films. It's not, it doesn't quite come out to one to one because oftentimes there's such huge hits that it, it can end up being like three for me, one for them. 
Yeah. But um, this is too big time one for me that is split by Firefox. Firefox. Ultimate, <laughs> ultimate instances of Clint trying his hand at like what the times were allegedly asking for. And it's a film I've only watched once and I've never really had any interest to watch again. Firefox as a director and then every which way but loose as an actor also came in between those two. Yeah. <laughs> an interesting picture of kind of like the two sides of his, uh, his career as a, an actor director. Yeah, I mean, Bronco, Bronco Billy was really the beginning of uh, Clint Eastwood, the notion of Clint Eastwood, the artist, I think. Um, we, we talked about uh, on the on the previous podcast, the Cry Macho podcast, we talked about Bird sort of being the moment where he was taken seriously because it played at the Cannes Film Festival and because it was about, you know, Charlie Parker, the great jazz saxophonist. But I think... You, you could argue Bronco Billy is really the beginning of the idea of Clint Eastwood, the auteur. Um, I just don't think people recognized it at the time. It's so interesting, though, that um, Clint himself and Sandra Locke definitely did. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Sandra Locke in her book, you know, obviously doesn't have very many kind things to say about Clint Eastwood, but has nothing but good things to say about Bronco Billy and the experience of making it. She literally says, like, Bronco Billy was a turning point for Clint at moment when people started to take him seriously. Apparently, MoMA did their first ever sort of Clint night, uh, showed, like, four of his films and had this as, like, the centerpiece. I know there literally can't be a centerpiece of four, uh, <laughs> the, the showcase. But it's, it's, it's so interesting that, like, I don't know. People who know from good films have always been like, you know, I, I, I think Bronco Billy is one to, is one to earmark. And I, I, I don't know. I just think if I was trying to win somebody over who was a skeptic to the idea that Clint was appealing at all, um, let alone an appealing, yeah, talented director, I, this film is just so winning, so affable. It's impossible not to have like a smile on your face by the end of it. Bennett, isn't it the only official comedy that he has directed it might be the only one that's marked as a comedy on uh, uh, Letterboxd. Uh, that, that he direct. I mean, he he's acted in comedies like you know, the, the, the orangutan movies, movies, yeah, Pink Cadillac. But it's like when he, even if a Malpaso uh, produces those films, it's almost like he farms them out to other directors. And I think Bronco, like all of his movies, have humor to a certain extent. But I I think you could argue Bronco Billy is the only official comedy that he actually directed it's definitely the goofiest and one thing these movies have in common is the abundance of reaction shots it's definitely the most like sitcom <laughs> the editing style of his films has ever been yes um yeah this it probably is yeah the most the most comedic of his films and, um, and I, yet at the same time so it you know right right out of the gate it it's accessible and uh you know it's a fun movie so i agree with you like it's easy to love but at the, by the same token, it's also a multi-layered experience, you know, because when you watch it, um, it's impossible not to think about what it means, you know, like how it functions as a personal testament for um, an actor who became famous playing cowboys. <laughs> so um, you can't watch it without thinking about how it functions as, you know, as a metaphor for Clint Eastwood's career as a Western movie icon. Yeah, it definitely has the pop appeal, but it doesn't quite go to the, you know, like happy, happy ending like you would probably expect from other directors in a similar story. Bennett, in your essay, you describe Roncobilly as a nuanced film that best captures Clint Eastwood and all of his complexities and contradictions. So how do you, how do you think those things go together? 
Um, well, I think it's um, a, a film that's both uh, a, a great showcase for um, everything that everyone who loves Clint Eastwood would acknowledge he does well. Um, you know, he, he wears the hat, he rides the horse, he looks, you know, lean, he sneers. But it's also like a, a feature-length argument against um, the idea that he's some embodiment of like exclusionary ideas. You know, they very literally perform in a big tent. Uh, at the end of the movie, it's a big tent made of flags. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, seeing Clint as uh, the leader of this this group, um, I don't know. It's it, it's heartwarming and it speaks to the complexity of his politics that I think a focus on the chair speech belies. So, Michael, a few years ago, you wrote a really amazing piece on White City Cinema about the reception of American Sniper and the various political meanings that people assign to it. To the listeners, if you have not read it yet, just put us on pause for a little bit and go go head over there and give it a read. Um, but you end that piece with a quote from Titus Tetra in the National Review that I wanted to bring up as we discuss both of these films. Um, but he said, you know, Clint Eastwood wants to give America something that it had when he himself was growing up, but that it lost somewhere along the way. Popular stories that beautify what's good about America in order to inspire and which include dramatic renderings of what's gone wrong without including despair. He has insisted on true stories for the most part to show that hope is grounded in American realities and that escape into fantasies is not the path to take in a time in times of trouble. What about that quote stands out to you and how do you feel it applies to Bronco Billy? Wow, that's crazy to hear you read that um, in this context, because uh, at the time I quoted it, I was thinking only about American Sniper. Mm-hmm. But that actually is the perfect quote to sum up uh, Bronco Billy. Um, because, uh, it is, it's about celebrating what's great about America, um, without, what was the part about fantasies without resorting to? Without inducing despair. Yes. Yeah. Not escaping into fantasies. And not escaping into fantasies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that makes Bronco Billy optimistic, um, and, and of course, we talked last time about Eastwood's vision uh, getting darker over time and becoming more pessimistic in his, in his uh, recent work is that um, I think he, he sees this, this troop of sort of ragtag wild West show performers as embodying what's great about America. It's almost like the American experiment um, succeed, you know, has succeeded to the extent that this, um, Wild West show can succeed because it is a you know multiracial um, uh, group of performers where you have you know the Scatman Crothers character Doc who's the MC you've got Native Americans you've got uh, somebody who's disabled you know and um, and yet they're all able to work together and there's something really beautiful about that. I would say the existence too of Bronco Billy itself in, in italics um, is also a like utopic accomplishment that sort of answers the the very questions it addresses. Um, I don't know. I had a film professor who used to always use "Do the Right Thing" as an example of a film that, like, by its very <laughs> existence, addresses some of the questions it's raising by virtue of it amassing this this diverse uh, cast yeah. and crew and like creating this this beautiful work of art. So I, I, I love that 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 yeah, the existence of the Wild West show and its continued success. The um, interesting thing about Bronco Billy, though, is there is this like elegiac quality to it where you feel like this type of show is old fashioned and that it's not, you know, like that type of entertainment is 
belongs to an earlier era. And they're very much not talking about keeping the show going for very long. Right from the beginning, exactly. it's pretty soon we're going to have enough money to get the ranch and you yeah. know, people can come out here, the you know kids and stuff who are actually interested in this stuff can come out and go to us. But it's really retirement for us. They, right. they know that they're kind of looking at the end of it. Yeah. Which which is what's so great about Honky Tonk Man, too, that even like eight films into his career, he's playing characters facing down what they know to be the end of their lives. You know? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this movie handles patriotism really well because it's not like ben i think you called it the flag humping uh patriotism that some people assume but this one is to me it just says like this can happen in america and that's something clint does really well in his films like especially when the tent at the end is all american flags it's not like yeah usa it's to me it's just kind of like wow that's like the american dream it's happening you know and like i don't know among the only ever real obstacles we ever see are like law enforcement figures uh enforcing what's bad about america yeah. <laughs> you know but the the standing behind the troops even what they're doing even what they're doing is vietnam you know and like even clint when he's like pissed off that uh that the member of his cast was a draft dodger even he's not you know like ah, you, you weren't over there fighting in vietnam even he's just like oh you know it's a it's a poor example for the kids to mm-hmm. do this you know uh, he, he's never for a second being like, oh, you got to respect the troops. It's it's very much a a pragmatic, uh, both a pragmatic and an idealistic attitude, honestly, uh, toward about, I think, what, what, what America ought to represent, which, I don't know, I think flies in the face of everyone's popular idea of Clint Eastwood. Everyone should do well, to, everyone would do well to watch his Super Bowl commercial, which I think was like the same year as the chair speech, and finds him instead standing for, I don't know, a kind of unifying attitude that's not annoying or pandering or mealy-mouthed. Check it out, everybody. Google Halftime in America. (laughs) All right, Bennett. Well, regarding the depiction of cops in his films, you know, there are a lot of parallels between Bronco Billy and Honky Tonk Man in that (laughs) regard. I was amazed to realize how negative his depiction of uh, police officers are in both of those films. And I mean that, you know, you, you see it in, in all of his films, like law enforcement, he's very, he's very skeptical of authority, but in those two films in particular, he is the, I'll go so far as to say he's the original all cops are bastards filmmaker, which should make him, you know, appealing to a lot of liberals today because Every time you see a cop in those movies, they are incompetent, corrupt. They're either corrupt or stupid, stupid. usually both. Yeah. (laughs) Even in Cry Macho, there's a scene where the the cops are hassling him and he's just muttering under his breath, like, oh, fucking losers, pieces of shit. Like, it's, I don't know, anybody who in 2021 still thinks that that he's some sort of, like, back the blue guy. Watch any of his films. Yeah, in in Cry Macho, when he just he verbally unloads on those two cops who've pulled him over. Um, and that goes on far longer than it needs to, you know, 100%. Like, he's, yeah, he's making it clear how he feels about these guys and like what they represent. Yeah. <laughs> but since we're on this topic, I want to ask you about the scene. Cause I think you shared a screenshot of it on Twitter. It's my favorite scene in the film. The one where he bribes the sheriff of that small town to get mm-hmm. his troop member out of jail. Um, that scene is extraordinary and really kind of, I don't know, stands apart from the rest of the movie. What I think it's one of a couple instances where we see common Clint iconography undercut 
in, yeah. in like an interesting way so as to emphasize the sort of like ridiculousness of what we're seeing we also see i know it's a common shot in clit films both just the films he stars and in the films he directs to see from the point of view of someone who is either about to get shot or about to get punched in the face and we yeah. get a few of those shots of his sidekicks on the uh the, the wheel of fortune for the show so that's sort of a, a way of making this iconic clit image a little bit ridiculous i think that scene where he's bragging the sheriff again has a little bit of that because instead of having a gunfight he just has to admit that the sheriff can shoot faster than him and let the sheriff like insult him with all of these folksy insults. And it's one of the things I like about the movie is it really seems to take place in a world where people talk like this. Yeah. Um, when, when, they're, when they're having that fight in the beginning, everyone's like, ah, what tarnation's going on? Uh, Sander <laughs> Lockett's kidnapped. egg sucker. egg sucker. Sander Lockett's kidnapped and is like, God, what the fuck is going on? And uh, yeah. Chief Big Eagle says like, that's Bronco Bill. He's the best friend a guy ever had, except for his wife. Like, and they really <laughs> talk like this. And I, I, I don't know, I love that. Um, yeah, the the dialogue is amazing. It's very colorful in a in a very stylized way. It's like quite quite literary because all of the slang terms that are being used are. It doesn't sound like the slang people were using in 1980. It feels very like deliberately old fashioned. You know, they're, they're talking like they're actually in a western. You know, from from the 19th century. So the the screenplay is quite good. I think. I think both movies have great scripts. Uh, I, I wrote down a bunch of lines from both. I especially like in Honky Tonk, man, uh, you're a fat, porky son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure yes. you can act up on Twitter. Yeah, uh, but, but uh, I just want to finish up talking about that scene with the sheriff. There's something so, it, it feels very deeply felt in a, you know, just in a, in a film that's personal. To me, that's one of the scenes that feels the most personal because of the way that that sheriff, who is a porky, who's also a porky son of a bitch, <laughs> uh, it's more important to him to hear Bronco Billy say, you're faster than I am, than it is for him to even receive that money. So that's kind of like the ultimate sign of how, of just how insecure and shallow this character uh -huh. is. You know, it's unbelievable. And at the same time, how much it goes without saying that within this world, Bronco Billy is like man of all men. Like yeah, to have him, you know, admit this actually goes a long way. But yeah, no, just such a such a uh, a jaundiced look at law enforcement. That again, yeah, to to see Clint as like the embodiment of like the ultra right is uh, it's wrong off the mark. Yeah, it's <laughs> off the mark. And actually, while we're talking about the stylized dialogue, uh, I would be remiss if I did not point out there's an amazing line of dialogue in Bronco Billy that um, was appropriated uh, in a Bob Dylan song. And I have to talk about this because on Twitter, you know, I've got one, I've got one foot in film Twitter, but I also have another foot in Bob Dylan Twitter. So I have to, to say there's an incredible line where Bronco Billy says to Doc, I've got to find me a woman who can ride like Annie Oakley, shoot like Bell Star, and who ain't afraid of nothing. And that line ended up in a 1985 song by Bob Dylan uh, called Seeing the Real You at Last. And how he ended up using it um, was uh, he, he sings, when I met you, baby, you didn't show no visible scars. You could ride like Annie Oakley and shoot like Bell Star. Would never have put those things together. <laughs> uh, there you go. Bob Dylan, Clint Eastwood fan. So you guys have been talking a bit about the acting. 
Sandra Locke was nominated for a Razzie for Bronco Billy. What's your take on her approach to this role? I think she's great. I, I think like she's supposed to be annoying when we first meet her and she's, right. you know, uh, the ultra wasp who's in this sort of like screwball marriage. Um, and I don't know. I think like it's, it's fun to watch her be like won over by Clint and the whole gang. Cause it's, I don't know. It, it mirrors the experience. I'd like to imagine of someone who's a Clint skeptic watching the film perhaps now. I mean, I obviously, and I, I think I hopefully allude to this well enough in the piece or, or, or explore this well enough in the piece. I think like her particular affection for the film does complicate and problematize what, what's, what's a pretty easygoing film because yeah, I mean, you're watching a film that's basically about like Stockholm syndrome and you're <laughs> reading someone who, you know, was in a long relationship with someone that ended so poorly uh, and so publicly badly um talk about how like you know they eventually saw through the act i mean that that complicates it but at the same time a part of what the movie is getting out is also recognizing that it's all an act that eventually the big top does come down you know I, problematizing a film does not necessarily have to mean uh encouraging you to you know toss it out altogether uh, right. in, in that instance but uh, no, in short, her performance is actually great. Like it is in all of the films they did together. Uh, it seems like she got a bad rap in general throughout her career. Despite being, I think, Oscar nominated in her first performance. Um, it, uh, I don't know, it seems like in general, she was not regarded as a great performer. But in, uh, yeah, in everything I've seen her in, I've always liked her performances. Yeah, I, I think she was um, quite right to be proud of that film because I think it's one of her best performances, maybe the best. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, she's a light comedy heroine. And, uh, as you note, um, it's kind of a screwball, um, subplot, uh, the, her, the introduction of her character, that whole business about her having to get married <laughs> before she turns 30 <laughs> in order to inherit millions of dollars. I mean, it's such a ridiculous, uh, premise, but um, that goes, uh, it goes back beyond screwball comedy. That goes all the way back to the silent era. That's actually the premise of uh, a Buster Keaton film called Seven Chances. Seven Chances, yeah. And that's like, you know, that's like the, one of the oldest um, screenwriting chestnuts there is, the person who has to get married in order to, to inherit money. And so it's, it's, I mean, by the time you get to 1980, I think uh, Clint Eastwood is treating it pretty, you know, we, we all know it's like a ridiculous um, premise. I think the fact that she's smoking out of a cigarette holder tells you probably all you need to know about how, <laughs> oh my God, how time yes. out of place her character is. Well, she, and her name is Antoinette Lily, which is a very uh, French sounding name, you know, meant to recall Marie Antoinette. She's wearing high heels. She's from New York City. And uh, it's really kind of wonderful to watch her evolve, you know, from the woman who refuses to sing barroom buddies <laughs> to the woman who ends up singing barroom buddies. Yeah. I don't know. I think if you nominate someone for a Razzie for, for doing a great job of embodying some like ridiculous, you know, caricature, then I, I don't know. I think you're showing your own ass as maybe like not getting the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, talking about her coming from the city though, um, it's also worth pointing out there's kind of a uh, plot twist when we realize that Bronco Billy is from New Jersey. And he never specifically says where he's from, but he does mention that he once he quit, he you know vowed never to, to go back to the city. So he wants to kind of you know live in the open air. He wants to live in, in the Southwest and live out this dream 
of being a cowboy. And I think part of the point of that is recognizing that he and she have sort of common roots from being from the Northeast and, you know, being, being city folks who are um, kind of reinventing themselves as adults. He was a shoe salesman, right? Until he was 31 years old. Yeah. He was 31 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So Scatman Crothers shot this film right after The Shining. I don't really have a question. Can you imagine? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I feel like that just needs to be said. Well, let's just just imagine for a second doing a hundred fucking takes with Stanley Kubrick <laughs> and then going immediately from that to one take Clint Eastwood. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine how much fun that must have been for him? It's quite the turnaround. Must have been nice. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised he wrote a song about Clint Eastwood because yeah, I'd have been I'd have been singing about my director if that was like the change of pace. Yeah, going from a hundred takes in the snow with the most intense director who ever lived to yeah, just <laughs> palling around with Clint. Apparently, he also had one about Stanley Kubrick. So I cu- I couldn't find that one, but I'm sure it exists. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of many filmmakers whose work so often packs a gut punch like Clint Eastwood's. This one definitely hits a lighter note, but its impact is no less severe than his heavy hitters. Bennett, you've called this his masterpiece. Um, Why do you feel it's his best? And what do you say to people who might hear that and think, this guy's just trying to be a contrarian? Well, I guess I would say Unforgiven is his masterpiece. I think it's very, it's so consciously, like just a a masterful work and it speaks for itself. (laughs) This is my favorite and the one I would call, like, maybe his best. Um, you know, for everything I've said already, but also, I he's he's so peerless among filmmakers. Like, one of the only people you could compare him to is is John Ford. And for a long time, I, I dismissed John Ford when I was, like, a brain genius because I couldn't get over some of, like, the tonal shifts and such you get from films of that era. You know, like, The, the, the Searchers is maybe an obvious example, but in that movie, you know, you have... John Wayne playing one of his most complex characters, and you also have this just goofy as shit Swedish family that's like falling all over themselves and doing like Bjorga Bjorga and stuff. And by golly, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I just I think like I think like reaching like adulthood as a cinephile was like realizing that those tonal shifts are like part of what's so wonderful about like that classical style of filmmaking. The best. And I think Clint is one of like the yeah well. So tonal shifts like this are still the bread and butter of filmmakers. You can't go and see a blockbuster today and not watch, you know, someone watch, for example, let's let's say they're a, a Queens teenager who's bitten by like a radioactive spider and develops superpowers. One minute they might, you know, see their aunt uh, killed. And then the next minute they're swapping quips with, you know, two other versions of themselves. That's That's like the new style of filmmaking is this sort of tonal shift that expects you to be bought in for both the jokes and the, the tear ringing. It never works in, in either respect, I don't think. Clint Eastwood, however, in something like Bronco Billy or in something like Honky Tonk Man in particular, I think really, really recaptures that sort of deft mix of tones, that sort of uh, oftentimes like imperceptible mix from you know sadness to, or, or, or laughter to poignancy that you see in films like, you know, The Searchers or The Long Gray Line or Young Mr. Lincoln, some of the great films from somebody like Ford. And I, yeah, I think Eastwood manages to do that in, in films like this. Uh, I, like Bronco Billy is like such a goofy movie that like manages to pack in like reaction shots from a goddamn horse. And nevertheless, it makes me cry 
when you know uh, uh, Running Water is saying, you know, don't you see what the Wild West show is all about? Um, I don't know. It, it uh, it's a movie that makes you realize why you fell in love with cinema. To talk like uh, <laughs> to talk like a Time Magazine critic for a moment. Mike, do you have any closing thoughts on Bronco Billy before we move on? Yeah, I just want to point out one other scene that I love that I think really is kind of the heart of the film, which is um, a scene Bennett alluded to earlier um, where he has the talk with the whole troupe in the rain. To me, I keep saying over and over, it's a metaphor for filmmaking. That to me is the scene that's really about film direction because uh, everyone wants to quit because they haven't been paid in a long time. They're all getting, you know, exasperated. And there's a sense in that, I, I think Eastwood's performance is quite complex in that scene because um, I feel like Bronco Billy is not quite as angry as he pretends to be. I think he's sort of playing a role in order to manipulate everybody, you know, mm-hmm. and the specific things that he says to all of them when he talks about, you know, um, you cow punchers don't take care of your ropes. Exactly. So. Yeah. It's like he knows how to push their buttons in order to get what he wants. And what he wants in that moment is for them not to quit. So I don't know. I just think there's something really just quite profound about that scene as you know, uh, as, as a metaphor for what a film director has to do. It's so clear that they're not just working together, but that like everybody has like a specific job that they have to do. And it's the director's job to like speak to them and uh, yeah, ad- address their unique needs. Totally. As a director, you have to communicate to people differently, you know, based on who they are, based on what they're doing. And that scene really, um, I, I know that's the level on which, he connected with it. And, you know, Bennett, he said many times uh, over the years that that was, you know, if I ever had anything to say, I said it in Bronco Billy. Well, I don't think he ever actually spelled out though what he was saying. You know, he, he keeps indicating that it's personal without really saying why. But in my opinion, um, it's, it's because uh, it's about filmmaking and it's about uh, film. It's about uh, movie acting. Um, and we haven't really talked about this, although we can talk about it when we talk about Honky Tonk Man, because that idea is also there. But it's about the idea of, you know, there's a lot of um, explicit dialogue about the notion of being whatever you want to be. And I think that's the level on which the film is a personal testament. Yeah, yeah. A theme that um, he might explore the most explicitly in Honky Tonk Man, but also comes up in other films that he made about artists, including uh, British in Madison County when he talks about, you know, exactly wanting to be taken seriously as an artist. So I think that's a really good pause point. So we're going to take a quick break. We could probably talk about Bronco Billy for three to five hours. So we're going to cut it there. <laughs> so we'll be right back and we'll be talking about Honky Tonk Man. So there is one direct link between these two movies that I wanted to transition with. So there's a great scene in Bronco Billy where there's a bar fight and Merle Haggard is playing and 
then we come over to Honky Tonk Man, and there's a great scene with Marty Robbins. And I think a lot of people who just have a surface level knowledge of Clint Eastwood don't really realize how deep his knowledge of music is. I mean, he's done, you know, you mentioned Bird earlier, but he's worked on some other jazz documentaries. This is a really, really great music film. Um, And I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts about Merle Haggard and Marty Robbins working with him in these films. I don't have much of a relationship with country music. At least I didn't before becoming more into Clint's films in 2020. I've, I've since listened to a lot of Marty Robbins. I love I love the gunfight songs and the trail ballads. Um, but I, I, I love the music exploration from Clint Eastwood. I don't know if you've seen the episode he did for Martin Scorsese's blues series, uh, Piano Blues. He interviews Ray Charles, and it's so fucking charming to watch Clint Eastwood be that starstruck. Like, Clint Eastwood clearly be, like, sitting next to someone who he thinks is, like worlds above him as an yeah. artist um because it's i don't know I don't, like it, it seems like clint really really wanted to be taken seriously as a musician more than he cared about being taken seriously as a filmmaker like i think he pretty quickly realized filmmaking was what was in the cards and at but, all all filmmakers are frustrated musicians <laughs> <laughs> um i'm interested in that. mike do you have much of a, a relationship with country music or, or, or i you, i do uh, actually i'm i'm from uh north carolina originally so i'm i'm half redneck myself <laughs> Um, I've seen. I saw Merle Haggard seven times in concert oh, wow. in, in three different states, and I think he's one of the you know one of the greatest songwriters of all time. So I loved that um, watching Bronco Billy for the first time and seeing him on screen. And you can't really hear it on the soundtrack, but uh, Barroom Buddies, uh, the version that plays in the film, it was a duet between him and Clint Eastwood. And of course, uh, in in uh, Honky Tonk Man, the the theme song Honky Tonk Man is a duet between Eastwood and Marty Robbins. So I thought that was super cool, you know, that he was uh, singing duets with these country music icons. That's definitely one of the things that unites those two films. But um, you know, in Piano Blues, the documentary you were talking about, Bennett, um, there's a there's an excerpt from. Honky Tonk Man in that film. It's the scene where Red Stovall, the protagonist of Honky Tonk Man, goes into the black, you know, jazz club and plays piano. And that's an amazing scene in Honky Tonk Man. And I think some people who watch Honky Tonk Man might feel like there's something unrealistic about it because uh, here you have a white country singer in the height of the Great Depression, early 1930s, in this African-American milieu. But actually, that's a realistic scene because the character of Red Stovall is based on Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music. And um, Jimmy Rogers recorded famously a duet with Louis Armstrong around the same time period. So even while American society was segregated. Uh, American musical genres were not as segregated as a lot of people might think. It's uh, the, the phenomenon of, of white performers playing in black venues is also captured, of course, in Bird uh, with his yeah, uh, right. collaborator who has to pretend to be albino. Red, uh, albino, <laughs> red. albino red. <laughs> um, I, I think they do just a great job of just in quick character interactions making you believe that he performs to rapt audiences in this club. 
Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you ever doubt it for a second. I think it's yet another movie where like the Clint Eastwoodness of his character sort of precedes him. Um, but it also presents such a great contrast to the first performance where we see him have to sort of slowly win an audience over. Um, it struck me how much that looks like um, the performances, especially the first one in Inside Lewin Davis, the photography. Um, you know, a lot of like rich browns. Um, it's, it's, it seems to be shot very similar, especially because like we really don't get very many good looks at the audience. I think we're kind of supposed to regard the audience as like assholes who are there to sort of like gawk at like an artist maybe. Um and uh, yeah, I don't know, the, the, the parallels between this and Inside Louis Davis um, struck me uh, in this one. There's even, um, there's the specter of a child that the lead character has never met. Um, yeah. There, there's kind of another, I don't see a lot of money here scene. Yeah. Although in oh, this yeah. one, it's very much, uh, th- this isn't really opera material scene. I'm, I'm amazed, Bennett, that you, you bring that up because I thought of the exact same thing. And um, <laughs> what's, what's really striking about both of those films is, you know, there are so many films about musicians and about artists in general. And I would say 99% of them are about artists who become successful, right? That's kind of the whole point um, is that, you know, it's like, then they, they go on to become these world beating artists. And, uh, you know, Inside Lewin Davis is an amazing film because it actually has the courage to be, about someone who's a loser, you know, like um, even though he's talented, uh, he's never going to make it. That's kind of the point of the ending of the film. It's like, even though he's talented, he's not going to be famous, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, I thought of that when I watched Hon- uh, Honky Tonk Man, because I thought, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Although in Honky Tonk Man, it's a little more pessimistic because that ends in literal death. Right. I think too, it might be, be a touch more optimistic, though, in a way, because at the very least, Lewin Davis also gets a radio hit. He gets Please Mr. Kennedy, but like it doesn't have his name. He doesn't collect any royalties. <laughs> Red gets that, that hit at the end. Yeah. Say, by Red Stovall. And he also, we understand that he's built sort of a career as a songwriter before we meet him in the film. There's, I think, one of the best shots in, in any Clint film I can think of is when he's watching uh, Bob Wills. Uh, performance yeah. in the studio and Clint's known for his sneer but he's got a great smile too and you get the shot of him just light up as he's watching someone perform his song and then you see Kyle see him uh, ooh. another another film that like uh, allegedly just a few thousand people have watched per letterbox but uh, I don't know I, more people should see it because y- you could talk about it for hours there, there's anything in Clint's filmography I think he says really well here or, you know, any of the major, like, themes of this filmography, I think, are, are here in, like, really interesting ways. So I'm going to pause you there for one second. Can we get a little bit of the plot just so people know what's going Sorry. on in this movie? <laughs> 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 We've gotten to the end before we yeah, got to the <laughs> So uh, Honky Tonk Man uh, tells the story of a country and Western singer-songwriter by the name of Red Stovall, very memorable name. Um, who has to travel from uh, Oklahoma to Nashville, Tennessee, where he is going to audition for the Grand Ole Opry, which is Mecca for, you know, country music uh, singer-songwriters. And um, along the way, he's accompanied by his young nephew, who's only 14 years old, um, who drives the car because Red cannot drive, as I indicated earlier. And the film is uh, very much kind of a shaggy dog road trip comedy drama about the misadventures they encounter along the way 
uh, culminating in Red's unsuccessful audition for the Grand Ole Opry. Um, so I should also point out Red Stovall is an alcoholic and is suffering from tuberculosis and uh, is a heavy smoker. So there's kind of this uh, sense that he's on a death trip, you know, and uh, Jimmy Rogers, who the character is based on, uh, died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. So, yeah, he's a self-destructive character. And the first time we see him, he is, he's dead drunk, uh, you know, at home. He's literally passed out at the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, passed out at the wheel. And uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's one of his great entrances. I mean, he's so often sort of like an agent of chaos kind of riding into town. And this, it's like very elemental how much that's the case. He's like bringing this like dust storm with him, which I don't know, might as well be the apocalypse for this sort of Oklahoma family. Um, I don't know. For me, it's up there with uh, him kind of appearing out of the mist in High Plains Drifter. As far as him seeming yeah. to, you know, represent this larger than life force, and then it's so great when he's passed out drunk, and they're like, "God, look at him." <laughs> this film has a real sense of dreams that got away, dreams that are just out of reach, and characters who just long to be somebody. One thing we didn't talk about with Bronco Billy that we could have is the the notion of uh, the American dream. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mentioned earlier, this is a film about people on the lowest rungs of the the showbiz ladder. And uh, I talk about the American dream a lot in my film history classes because I teach the Western and I also teach uh, film noir. And of course, film noir is very much about the dark side of the American dream and how, you know, um, people who are looking to make an easy score you know, oftentimes find that it's not as uh, it's not as easy as they had, had assumed. And um, that's what you see, I think, in both Bronco Billy and Honky Tonk Man, right? The idea that, like, you can be whoever you want to be, no matter um, what name you're born into, no matter what circumstances you're born into, you can, um, you know, you can create your own identity, um, in Bronco Billy, you know, he changes his name, he changes his persona. And um, my students will ask me, well, why is that American? <laughs> like, doesn't everybody want to become, you know, rich and famous? But I say it's because America is a young country. You know, Europe, in, in Europe and in most other countries in the world, they're very, very, very old. So in America, I think there's an idea that it like doesn't matter what you do in order to become rich and famous. If you do, you will be accepted. Whereas in Europe and in other places, it's like the doors to um, respectable society will be closed because these societies are so old that like your, your name counts for something. I think there's an idea too that the cement is still wet. I think in America, there's an idea that there's still the opportunity to sort of make your mark, whereas things have been kind of set in stone elsewhere. And I think we see that. I think I think we see that manifest in um, the grandfather in Honky Tonk Man, who talks about being part of the Oklahoma land rush, which uh, yeah. viewers, may, listeners may remember, of course, from uh, Ron Howard's film Far Far and Away. Um, you know, this is uh, a, a very literal instance of people. You know facing what was to them, obviously, uh, unclaimed land and, uh, you know, uh, staking their claim, kind of putting down their name. Um, it's interesting how the, the, I don't know, the search for like fame and personal fulfillment changes a little bit in the two films. I think you get the sense in Bronco Billy that like 
so long as there are a few uh, buckaroos in the audience, he's fine. It doesn't really matter about the acclaim or the audiences. Whereas like Honky Tonk Man, it's very much about finally like having an audience, finally having people recognize that you have something to say. And I think it's self-evident for Bronco Billy that like what he's saying is meaningful. Whereas I, I think Red faces a lot more like realistic obstacles. I'm glad you brought up the the, the buckaroos and the little partners because uh, both characters, Red Stovall and Bronco Billy, have like interesting relationships with children, <laughs> you know, and uh, to go along with like the optimism of Bronco Billy, it's very much like a, it's a children's film. I, if I had seen that as a kid, I would have loved it. You know, it's, it. a, it's a PG rated, it's like there are so many shots in that film that are kind of from a child's eye view. And Honky Tonk Man is the opposite. You know, that's an adult film um, <clears throat> from an adult's point of view. Um, and he takes his, you know, 14 year old nephew into a whorehouse to lose his virginity. What, what kind of world is this where a man can't buy a woman for his own son? <laughs> I mean, that scene would never fly today. No. Um, but it's, it, but it is, you know, it's, it's quite funny. And, um, even the visual style of those two films is it's night and day. Honky Tonk Man is by far the more beautifully photographed film. Bronco Billy is kind of a, it's kind of anonymous looking, you know, it's like everything is brightly lit, but it kind of looks like television. It looks kind of generic, which works, um, you know, based on given what the movie is about um, the, the DP of, Bronco Billy, David Wirth, you know, it was the only Eastwood directed film he ever shot. And then he went on to shoot a bunch of like bad action films, including I think some for Jean-Claude Van Damme. But Honky Tonk Man was shot by Bruce Surtees, who shot, I think, seven Eastwood films, as well as films by Don Siegel and uh, Arthur Penn and, you know, all sorts of interesting filmmakers. And uh, Honky Tonk Man looks more like an Eastwood film. It's got the darkness, the, the literal, you know, visual darkness and the production design of like recreating the 1930s. It's really a, a beautiful film to look at. It's the first of his films, I think, that has the sort of prestige look we associate with um, his Oscar era. It's kind of interesting to see that so early. Right. And I think um, Jack Green was like the, uh, I think he was an assistant on Honky Tonk Man. Yes. He later, you know, shot Unforgiven. Shot a bunch of his films, yeah. All of those great later films. So one thing I really like this about Honky Tonk Man is how they develop Clint Eastwood's character because at first it's like, oh, he has an audition for the Grand Ole Opry, okay. But as he goes more places, you really realize that like he's a very well-respected musician everywhere he goes. And it kind of comes about through his nephew's eyes. I mean, do you guys agree that this is one of his better like un unveiling of the characters that he has? I like how we I, I like how we get a sense of his his reputation um, as we meet more and more people along their way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I sort of mentioned this before. I like Clint movies where his Clintness precedes him. Um, I think the best example of that is The Mule when he walks into the flower show and is like, you know, hey, you son of a bitch, and like doing all of that, and everybody knows who he is. <laughs> And I, I think it's interesting to see that happen through like a kid's eyes. We're watching um, Kyle Eastwood kind of get a sense of who his father is, in a sense, kind of come, you know, slowly kind of come to terms with what like a, a Titanic star presence he is, you know, and, and I don't know what he means for American movies and America in general. Um, 
I don't know. It's an interesting way to watch that kind of play out through the eyes of this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Kyle Eastwood's uh, performance is fantastic. Yeah. I was thinking about that watching it this time in a way that I didn't earlier, which is um, I was thinking about Kyle Eastwood being Clint's son, and I thought, you know, there there are actually quite a few child performances in Eastwood's filmography, and this one I think is the best. And I think it's because it's his son. I think there was a level of um, comfortability there, you know, the, the familiarity um, where he clearly, you know, just completely, tr- you know, he knew his dad and trusted him. But I actually think Kyle Eastwood gives the best performance in the entire film. I think it's that's really what the movie's all about. It's about him, uh, his relationship to his uncle. It's so cool to see him like put on the hat and stuff at the end too. And yeah. Like, become him. And they don't lean too much into that. There's no like big moment of him like picking it up. It just sort of, it's, it's very matter of fact. In, in conversations with Clint, Clint talks about um, like the making of the film. It talks about Kyle's performance. And um, I actually think like something he says is kind of illuminating about his approach to acting and working with actors and kid actors in particular Um, He says, uh, children are naturally fantastic actors. The moment we start growing up and start piling all the inhibitions and all the problems of our lives on top of it and all the things we're supposed to do or supposed to be or not supposed to be, we can't act anymore. What you have to do as an adult is tear all those layers back off again and go back to having the same childlike mentality you had as a kid. You can throw the switch and become whatever you want to become. Much like Bronco Billy states, you you can become what you want to be. I'm who I want to be. It's so interesting to, to hear that from Clint, a guy we associate sort of with a, you know, rub some dirt in it, man up sort of attitude toward yeah. like today's generation. To hear him say like, I don't know, being like any good as a performer or as a director of performers is to just be a, be a kid again. And I, I don't know, I think it's an interesting thing to reflect on in terms of both of these films, which appeal so well to, I think, younger audiences and capture Clint playing very Clint-like figures through the eyes oftentimes of children. Yeah, every time we see kids in Bronco Billy, they're in awe of Bronco Billy every time they see him, uh, in much the same way that Clint must have been as a child when he saw Westerns, you know. Um, And I think, you know, there's something, he's absolutely right. There's something, children are natural actors, you know. It's like they they haven't learned the bad habits yet. Um, They're just like, you know, acting is make-believe and that comes natural to them. And then the older they get, um, the harder it sort of becomes, you know, it's like you have to, as you get older, you have to learn to, you have to consciously learn what you were able to do unconsciously when you were a kid. I, I like basically every performance from a kid in Eastwood's films. I think, I think the kid in a perfect world is great. Cause he's so like a kid, there's no like cutesy bullshit with him. Uh, even at like the most, I don't know, sentimental, the, the relationship between him and Kevin Costner gets, it's never, you know, there's no mugging. And even in a film that's so full of like reaction shots, we never really get any like, I don't know, uh, playing to the rafters, sort of cutesy kids performances. He, he talks about how much he hates cutesy stuff from from actors of any age. You know, I, I people hate the, 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 you know, one take and we go to lunch approach to filmmaking, but I, I think you find better acting in just about every Eastwood film than you do in any film that cleans up at the Oscars for acting. Yeah, right. And I think it's because he, he, he treats the kids like adults. And then treats his adult actors like adults instead of babying them and letting them get 500 takes to, to, to try a new take on the accent. I think it's right. Matt Damon who tells a, tells a story about either working on Hereafter or Invictus. I think Hereafter, he says, uh, you know, can I, can I do another take of that? And Clint apparently literally said, why is he waste everybody's fucking time? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He just he knows when to cut.
So once he settles into a film's locations, I feel like his films really hit their stride. I mean, Cry Macho, you know, the beginning takes a little bit to get going, but once they're set in the town, like, it's great. You know, Bridges of Madison County, it's just such a simple, they're just people hanging out. How do you feel about the way Clint structures these movies with a balance of road film and deeper drama set in a central location once they arrive in Memphis? Well, I I was kind of amazed to realize the extent to which Honky Tonk Man and Bronco Billy are road films, you know, and then and then thinking about Clint's career, it's like he's made a lot of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's part of his idea of America. It's a place where, you know, you can you can be who you want to be. You can go where you want to go. When I was watching these films, I, I like created screenshots of the of the title cards of both films, and I, I tweeted those images. Uh, and I thought it was kind of funny that like they uh, the title card of Bronco Billy is uh, the landscape of you know it's a landscape shot of the land juxtaposed against the sky, and it lasts the entire opening credits where you hear that song about uh, everybody loves cloud, uh, cowboys and clowns. Cowboys and clowns. <laughs> Never met a person who is even neutral on clowns. Never heard a positive opinion. But then in Honky Tonk Man, you have the same thing. It's like the opening credits of Honky Tonk Man, you actually see multiple shots. But when the title appears, it's a very similar shot. You see the land and you see the sky. So um, in a way, I think he's kind of announcing that these are films about the land, you know, and the people who traverse the land, you know, it's kind of amazing to realize, Oh, even with uh, you know, unforgiven is a road movie, right. It's about mm-hmm. like, it's very important that William money travels. Gets uh, the big whiskey. Yeah. yeah. Too big whiskey. And then, you know, has to stop and have a, you know, go to sleep and have a, a campfire. There's scenes know, them around the fire. The yeah, exactly. Bridges of Madison County is a road movie. Bridges of Madison County is on the road. Right, exactly. Because that's like, that's that's an American genre. But uh, Honky Tonk Man is like, it's probably the Clint film that I think conforms to that genre the most because he only arrives, you know, at his destination at the very end, which is not true of these other films. So um, it's almost like he, you know, he, he shows up in Nashville he fails the audition, Red Stovall, because uh, because of it. He has a coughing fit um, because his tuberculosis, you know, sort of betrays him. It's a so lunger. He lo- yeah, he loses. He's a lunger. He loses the audition. At, yet he's still able to have this like recording session where the character of Smokey takes over. But even still, that's like there's this question of um, is the record producer exploiting him? Right. Because the the record producer knows he's dying. So it's like, oh, well, let's like let's get this down, you know, before he's gone. And even, uh, you know, even Kyle like knows that there's something dubious about that. So it's interesting, like how much drama is sort of packed into those final final few minutes. Right. It's only like once the, the, the road trip has come to an end then the film is over, you know, pretty, pretty damn quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's so much packed into that last 20 minutes after the audition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's like right out of Jimmy Rogers life. I was reading, uh, apparently like his last recording session, he was like resting on a cot between songs cause he was so sick. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, you know, one thing that's interesting about the about the end of Honky Tonk Man, it's like completely unrealistic that uh, that Red Stovall would have a coughing fit that would, you know, make it impossible for him to continue performing and that somebody else could step in and finish uh-huh. the song and that that would be the recording. And yet, well, it makes no literal sense, but on a poetic level, it's perfect, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think uh, that might be an obstacle for some people because Hunky Tonk Man is not a realistic film. You know, uh, all of the music that you hear in that film doesn't sound like it could have come from that era. It sounds much more modern. You know, it's interesting. It, it sounds nothing like the way country music sounded in the 1930s. It's like a full band sound. There's like a drummer, you know, um, and yet it, it, it's perfect. He surrounds himself with like real country musicians whose talents are, you know, way, uh, way out of proportion with his own. And nevertheless, he still succeeds. And like everyone who hears him is like, wow, this is a real talent. And, you know, again, besides the Opry folks who object to his, like, maybe potentially dying on Mike. And I, that's another way in which I think it's kind of a more optimistic movie than Inside Louis Davis. Because Inside Louis Davis at the end, you know, Bob Dylan shows up as if to say, well, no matter what he was going to do, he was fucked. Like, right. th- this one guy was going to take this whole sound to another level and, and change the world. And, you know, Red Stovall meets a whole lot of real-life country musicians who, you know, love his songs and are performing his songs. Then at the end, he's on the radio and, you know, they introduce it as a Red Stovall song. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that's unbelievable is that all of these real-life country musicians would be hearing Clint Eastwood's voice, which is, like, fine. Uh, He would be, like, your friend that's, like, a a better singer than you. Um, Yeah. Like... Uh, but they all hear it and they're like, no, this is, this is the sound. Yeah. And that's, that's unbelievable, but it's, yeah, it makes a perfect poetic, like cinematic sense. It's like the fact that he breaks him out of the jail and that like no one ever comes around asking <laughs> about that. or, or, or anything that happens in most of the movies that Clint has made like recently where, you know, Clint is like an 80 year old man doing the stuff he's doing. Right. Most of what happens in Cry Macho and the Mule is the same level of unbelievability, but also, oh, it makes perfect sense with the diegesis because we've established that he's, you know, Earl Stone or Red Stovall or, or whoever. Or Mike Milo. <laughs> or Mike Milo or William Money. Yeah, well, you know... Because again, and, that, the fact that he shoots all those guys at the end of Unforgiven is completely... All right, <laughs> you've talked me into it. Honky Tack Man, there is an optimism to the ending. Because I think, I, think, I think you bring up a good point, which is that Red Stovall is a songwriter, whereas Lewin Davis is not. I think that's kind of the point of Inside Lewin Davis is he was a, a great interpreter of folk music, but he came along at a time when the idea of like writing songs, it wasn't something that was like required in order to, uh, in order for a musician to become popular. But then when Dylan shows up, he sings the, the song. Dylan is the yeah, yeah, he's yeah. What song is it? It's a uh, farewell. Yeah. That's uh, that's an original song. So it's like uh, that's kind of uh, the Coen Brothers way of saying this is the future, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. Um, Red Stovall at the end, it's like those were his songs. So that's going to be the foundation of his his legend. And then to take it into like the meta level, the fact that like you get the soundtrack and there's the Marty Robbins song called Honky Tonk Man. It's almost like Marty Robbins recorded a Red Stovall song. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Although I also have to wonder, like, Red Stowell's not around to enjoy it, so. (laughs) 
it's yeah, it's only so optimistic. But um, no, there's the degree too to which Haas has become Red Stolo by putting on the hat and grabbing yes. the guitar. It took me a while. He's going to California. He's going to California. It can only be so optimistic because I don't know. You can only be so optimistic as like an American, <laughs> certainly an American living uh, when the movie takes place. Right. Um, so one thing I was unaware of. Marty Robbins died a week before Honky Tonk Man was released. And from really? from what I could find, that scene was like his last public project. It's like, wow. unfortunately, it's a beautiful goodbye because that kind of mirrors the movie. But yeah, kind of heartbreaking. I, I, I like it even more. God yeah. <laughs> One thing that stood out to me from the Cry Macho episode is when you both said that Cry Macho was really the first time Clint has turned his back on America. Um, both of these films are so much about the American dream and what it means to pursue a dream no matter what it takes. When taken in consideration with recent films like you know, Richard Jewell, Sully, The Mule, how do you feel Clint's representation of the American dream has changed since Honky Tonk Man and Bronco Billy? Well, I, I don't know. I think like all of us, he's maybe grown a little more pessimistic. It's hard to imagine him making a film as optimistic as Bronco Billy or even as uh, uh, even featuring the hard one optimism of Honky Tonk Man. Watching Cry Macho, I think he maybe still has a little bit of belief in the possibility of America. And what made me think of that in, in rewatching it was... When he's talking to Raffo, when, when Mike, his character in Cry Macho, is talking to Raffo about America, he's he's trying to prepare him for life up there by presenting kind of an optim, uh, an idealized picture of what life in America is like. He tells him, you know, this 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 macho bullshit like doesn't fly up there. Couldn't be more untrue then or now, but it's it's still him talking about a idea of America that, you know, from the other side of the border, he'd like to imagine exists. And I, I, I don't know, I like to imagine Clint on that other side of the border thinking that maybe, you know, Rafa has found that other kind of America. So I think there's there's still a touch of optimism there. But yeah, I don't know. A, a movie like Richard Jewell is a really acrimonious <laughs> film that uh, th- does not find a lot to like in the law enforcement or media apparatus that, like, you know, run the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, if 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 Cry Macho is what he ultimately goes out on, I think both because Mike Milo doesn't die and because Mike Milo uh, suggests uh, a, an America that's maybe nicer than the one we've seen, um, it's you know a good note to end on, and a somewhat optimistic one. It's optimistic and it's pessimistic because it, it's optimistic in its in its vision of humanity, but it's pessimistic in its vision of America. You know, because Mike Milo chooses to turn his back on America, which I think is really interesting. He's like, you know, fuck this. I'm going to go live in Mexico, you know, with my restaurant owning senorita. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you look at all of the films that, that he made before that, it really living in America seems very stressful. You know, even if you look at a movie like Sully, it's kind of like. You know, it has a happy ending, and uh, and I put happy ending in in quotation marks. Like the, just the stress of having to deal with the bureaucracy doesn't seem worth it. The moment you're a known entity, it yeah. really becomes not at all worth the trouble. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I I do think Bronco Billy and Honky Tonk Man both 
are optimistic in a way that his 21st century output is not in terms of what it has to say about America. I, I, I think he's done with America in much the same way that Dirty Harry throws away his badge at the end of uh, the first Dirty Harry. He's like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like my brother and I've been talking about Clint movies and it recently it seems like a, a lot of them do focus on people who do the right thing and it's just terrible things happen to them. And, you know, like Richard Jewell, especially it's, you know, he stops the bomb and then it's like, no, you planted the bomb. It's like, but that's kind of what happens these days. <laughs> and it's really unfortunate. So I think my final question for today, where do you feel Clint Eastwood stands in the pantheon of storytellers who can capture what it means to live in America? I, I think he would be peerless if not for John Ford, as far as the American filmmakers are concerned. Um, he's, he's one of the greats. I can't believe it took me so long to actually take him seriously as a filmmaker. For so much of my life, he was either you know, the cowboy or the, the guy who won Oscars for, you know, middle brow crap or the conservative crank. And then actually watching the films, again, I don't necessarily expect anybody to watch all 39 of them. But if you check out these two, I, I, I think you might learn that, uh, yeah, he's really one of the great artists this, this country's ever produced. And uh, it will be sad to see him go because he is truly the last of his kind. Yeah, I agree with uh, Bennett. He's the last physical link to the golden age of Hollywood. You know, he was, he, he, he was working in Hollywood in the 1950s. He uh, appeared in a film by wild Bill Wellman. And uh, so he's the only um, director working today who has any sort of practical experience in that era. So once he's gone, that era in a way is gone. And, um, I was thinking about this the other day. It's going to be kind of sad. Like eventually there will come a day where everyone who is directing movies will be someone who uh, grew up watching films projected digitally, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'll actually probably be dead when that day arrives. And I'm glad that I won't be around to see it. Um, but, you know, I remember vividly watching The Mule and Cry Macho and even Gran Torino, you know, in the theater on the big screen for the first time and just thinking, uh, this is this is kind of like the 1950s. You know, it has that um, classicism and that, that, that like visual economy that John Ford and Howard Hawks had. And um, in the future, I think people will come along who will try and emulate that. And maybe the results will be interesting, but the greatness of Clint Eastwood is he doesn't have to try. It, it, it's second nature to him uh, because that's where his roots lie. So that makes him invaluable to me. He's carrying on that tradition, uh, that classic Hollywood tradition into the 21st century, and he's alone in doing so. And to me, there's tremendous value in that. And we, and we live in such an era of, um, and obviously, I don't know, filmmaking has been like this probably for as long as it's been around, certainly since the new Hollywood, of these kind of like self-styled artists who love nothing more than telling you about why they made every decision and yeah. what inspired every, you know, like, like how they did it and, and what films they were trying to emulate. And Clint Eastwood is maybe the last of his kind in the respect that he's very much of the John Ford 
mold in that like you ask him about something and he goes uh yeah i guess maybe <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. i was thinking about that I, there, there's a there's a lack of pretension uh uh, uh married with the, the the like supreme artistry that is just you're not gonna find it anymore almost anyone who's making films that are recognized today is you know they're gonna over they're gonna on their own ass to a certain extent yeah they're, they're gonna tell you exactly why they made every choice that they made and i i agree with you because when i was a kid when i first discovered john ford i was in awe of what he did i mean i remember watching the searchers and kind of discovering the subtext of that film and of you know ethan edwards um and then, and then I would read interviews with Ford and read books about him. And I'd be like, why isn't he talking about what this movie's really about? And then uh, I would get kind of frustrated. And, and then the older I got, the more, the, the more glad I became that he didn't explain. Because now we're living, in an, we're living in an age of like, you know, DVD commentary tracks where it's all there. <laughs> you can read the oral history of every movie that was ever made. Exactly, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's 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 nice when a filmmaker just lets the art speak for itself. God, what happened to just like I don't know, like trusting your audience to make their yeah. own interpretations? Whatever happened to like acknowledging that you might not have the best read on the material? I don't know. I, I just I, the Clint's like lack of pretension is, uh, yeah, it, it's in short supply these days. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't look forward to a, a generation of filmmakers weaned on the films we're seeing accepted as classics today. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't look forward to a generation of filmmakers who are like, I'm going to make my own fucking Midsummer or something. Yeah. But right. I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, the cinema will never die, you know, it will reinvent itself. It will renew itself, but yeah, I don't know. There's a certain kind of cinema that, uh, that, that I do feel like will, will disappear. Because it has to, you know, uh, if, if you weren't around to live through this era of 35 millimeter projection of seeing movies on the big screen, then you're not going to be able to make movies like that. And that that's the bottom line. It's like only Clint Eastwood, you know, he's the only one who was around at that time learning to make movies at that time. So I think my final thought for this episode, Michael, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but growing up, like my relationships with Clint Eastwood films is that he is my sixth cousin and it's the type of relationship where people are like, that's not a real thing, but it is actually real. <laughs> but you know, I, when I was really young, I watched all of his films because it's like, wow, this guy is like a part of our family. How cool. But I hadn't watched many of his films since like middle school and high school. And so I've had so much fun going back and watching these just because it's amazing to see the films he's actually made and what they mean when you get older and you can actually understand the deeper meanings of them. So I've, I'm so glad you guys wanted to do this episode and it sounds like maybe a few more um, because it's, he's an incredible director and he deserves people <laughs> to be watching his movies. So should we end this with a quick pick? Yeah, yeah. Bronco, yeah. Bronco Billy versus Honky Tonk Man. Bennett, I think I know which way you're leaning, so why don't we start with you? I am going to give Bronco Billy the slight edge, but I watched Honky Tonk Man again like an hour before our recording, and I like it even more than I thought I did. That scene with the bull, you know what it reminded me of? 
all the bull scenes in the Jackass films, I found myself thinking, you know, I wonder if Clint Eastwood has ever seen Jackass. I'm sure he's aware of the idea as like a phenomenon because it was, yeah, it was kind of inescapable in the early odds. But I doubt he's seen any of the films. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Mike, in addition to your pick. You know what? I'm a total ignoramus when it comes to Jackass. Oh, now's the time to catch up. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yes, perhaps. Well, um, you know, gun to head, I will say Bronco Billy is the film that I would I would pick uh, between the two. But uh, but but do we really have to pick? I mean, watch them all. (laughs) They're all good with the possible exception of the rookie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the worst one. You know, I I celebrate the man's entire filmography. So uh, as long as you're willing to have me back, I'm willing to come here and talk about the films of Clint Eastwood. I think we will be doing that pretty soon. So we'll get together again soon. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. Bennett, as always, great to have you around. <laughs> and if you haven't... Thanks so much to both. To the readers, I cannot stress this enough give bennett's bronco billy essay a read and michael's american sniper piece it's both brilliant yeah can't say nice enough things about those two so thank you both again and we'll do this again soon